I'd like to <clears throat> I'd like to pray with you for a minute or two just as we look into God's word. Let's pray. I love Psalm 100, Lord, where it invites us to enter your courts with praise with thanksgiving, which I believe we've done today. And we pray that you've been blessed. We pray that you've been exalted. We pray that we've had this healthy sense of alignment with who you are and who we are in relationship to you. We invite you here. We know you're here already, but you like to be invited. It's very true in Scripture. So we just invite you here by our, your spirit. We pray that you will be honored as we continue in an atmosphere and an outward expression of worship as we listen to your word, as we say, Lord, what would you have for me in it? But Father, before we look into your word further, I do pray for the families here. Very true in scripture that you are a generational God. It's your desire for people to come to faith and each generation has to make that decision to bow the knee to you or not, to give their life to you or not. And yet, you long to see families changed. You long to see families that serve together based on how you've gifted them. You long to see families in healthy relationship with one another. And you long to bless out to a thousand generations families that walk with you. So Lord, give us wisdom as we model those things, whether we're the youngest among us or the oldest. And Father, now as we consider your word, we pray your blessing, we pray your touch, we pray that you'll be with us as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I want to talk to you about being a weirdo. The dictionary says that a weirdo is a person who is strange or eccentric, unconventional. And the real Jesus who we've been looking at as we've walked through the book of 1 John clearly wants us to stand out in a way that for many in our world, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. So if you have your Bible or your device, your hard copy, turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, as we're continuing just walking systematically, expositionally, it's called through the Word of God in the book of 1 John, 11 messages. And in just a moment, I'm going to say to you, this is the Word of God, and and all through history, we've been doing this for many years now, and, and, and down through hundreds, probably thousands of years, the people of God have done this. And, and often the response is, thanks be to God. You don't have to respond that way. There's nothing legalistic about this. You might just say amen. You might say I agree. You might just give it a thumbs up. And if you're not comfortable speaking aloud, you don't have to do it, whatever. What it is is another opportunity to outwardly worship, which is a good thing. To say, when you're affirming God's word, you're saying, I believe you, God. I believe the word that you've given is a gift. And as an act of surrender, as an act of acknowledgement, when you speak like that, you're saying, 
I'm on your team, God. I'm amenable to what you would have for me from your word. And that pleases God when we have that kind of alignment in our heart. And so as I read to you in just a moment from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's read. This is the message you heard from the beginning. You should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love with words or tongue. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's interesting because yet again, and I believe every week in this series, and this is now week number seven, as we've walked through the book of 1 John, in every section of scripture we've gone to, we see this expression from John, dear children, every week, sometimes multiple times a week, sometimes directly, indirectly, multiple times a week, he refers to us as dear children. And you keep saying to me, or some of you have, you keep saying this, Scott. And there's a reason I keep saying this. It's because the text keeps saying it every week. In other words, do not miss this. John has observed that the people of God tend to miss this. This is why he keeps bringing it up. And he's saying this, be reminded, God loves you. John says, my life has been completely transformed by Jesus. When I was a young man, I was arrogant. I was passionate, not in a good way. I had little regard for people. I was rough around the edges, ambitious in a way that had nothing to do with God, because there is good ambition. His was not. Now, when he gave his life to Jesus in over 60 plus years, he's changed. And so he's saying, God loves you. And John is saying, I love you. I'm in your corner. The real Jesus has your back. The real Jesus wants what's best for you. And he's bringing these thoughts, these themes, all the way through the book. This passage that we've just read from 11 to 18 has this dramatic contrast that's portrayed in here. He talks about this versus that. So let's talk about this first. And this is, is the usual. It's the conventional. It's the standard way that many people react to other people. Not everybody does this in this way, but the vast, vast bulk of people react in this way. And it begins like this in verse 12. He says, do not be like Cain. 
who belong to the evil one. And if you know the story of Cain, which we'll talk about here in a moment, his life dissolved into jealousy and anger and envy and bitterness, and it resulted in hatred and eventually murder. Cain, we're talked about in Genesis chapter 4, is the oldest brother. He worked the land as a farmer. His brother Abel, who was younger than him, was a shepherd. And for the two brothers, it was time to worship. And in Genesis 4, they go to the place where they did their type of church, because church is found all through the Bible. There is no plan B in the economy of God. They come to a place of worship, And one of the elements of worship which we celebrate and which we did today is the idea that I get to trust God, I get to say I love God, and I get to honor God through giving. And so they come to worship, and we're not totally sure why, but both of them bring an offering to God, and we're not totally sure why, because Cain's offering is rejected, and Abel's is accepted. And there's been a lot of speculation about that. Let me give you a couple of the ideas. Abel, the younger brother, we're told in Genesis 4, brings first fruits when it comes to giving, off the top. And this is the consistent theme that never is taken away all through Scripture, that when we give, we give to God first before anything else, before you pay your taxes, before you pay your bills, before you do anything. We give to God first. He also gave of the best, if you read the text. It says he gave of the fattest portions of the animal, which at that time meant the best. Maybe Cain didn't do that. Maybe Cain's heart, some have suggested, wasn't in the right place. Maybe his attitude was wrong. Maybe he resented giving. Maybe he resented having to work so hard to produce his crops. Maybe this resulted in no joy in his life. So maybe he didn't give of the first fruits. Maybe he didn't give of the best. But most likely, it was a heart attitude issue. And God looks at the heart. And so God warns him in verse 6 and says, You're really angry right now, Cain. I'm giving you another chance to do this right. If you do it's right, we're all good. It will be acceptable. The relationship between you and me will be fine. But I'm warning you, Cain. I can tell your heart's not in the right place right now. And if you do not address this, things are going to go downhill rapidly. And we read in the text that Cain is angry with God. And he does what we often do. And this is what we often do. We don't want to shake our fist at God and say, I'm angry with you. We don't want to pray and, and be, have, have the integrity to say, here's what's really going on in my life. You already know because you know my thoughts, God. But I'm going to act like you don't know. And I'm going to do an end around you, even though I'm angry with you, God, and I'm going to attack an innocent person instead. Often a person that is representative of the relationship with God. 
And so he goes to his brother Abel, who is a righteous man, who has done nothing wrong, whose worship was acceptable, and even though he's angry with, his, with God, he takes it out on Abel instead. And first of all, he is angry, and he is jealous, which begins to disintegrate, and he becomes bitter, and then he becomes filled with hatred, and then he lashes out and he murders his brother. Now someone says, well, Scott, you know, I do those end arounds, but I'd never murder someone. Probably not, more than likely. But we are actually capable of some pretty dark stuff, right? In elaborating on this idea, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, 21 and 22, he says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. So he's talking about one of the 10 commandments there. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Lord. And anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Mark Driscoll suggests that we may not physically kill them, but we do try to murder their reputation. I'll get them. Or we look at them and we evaluate that person in light of their worst day. They have had a horrible day. Everything you can imagine has gone wrong. And maybe they didn't respond the best on that, their worst day of their life. And we take that and we use their response on that particular day or in that particular instance and we use it against them. And we view them through the lens of how horrible and they didn't do very well on that particular day. Or we murder them by telling half-truths about them. Or we try to take down their business. Or we try to harm their marriage. Or we try to harm their family. And I would suggest to you that many, many of us react in some of those ways. A second one, second way we will often react is what I would call navel lint. The stuff you get in your belly button. And what I mean by that is we would say, I don't hate you. I don't want to see you destroyed. But to be honest with you, you don't matter to me. You're like navel lint to me. And it's not a big deal, but it's something to be avoided. I don't care about you. I don't pray for you. I don't give. I wouldn't even think about sacrificing for you. I'm not concerned about you. I don't even notice you. You're just someone I would step over, and you're just some nameless person to be ignored. Does that sound like a lot of people in our world? I think so. I think that's kind of the usual way, the standard way, the conventional way that many people react to other people. The third one is, I will love you if you love me. 
I will love you if you love me. And so the relationship is about to start, whatever it is, whatever the nature of it is. And I might even be the one that initiates the contact. Maybe the other person initiates the contact. But in doing this, we're just testing the waters. We're testing to see how this other person will react, whether I start it or they start it. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, if they reciprocate back to me in what I consider an appropriate manner, and if they keep up the good work, then I will do that too. I'll keep giving back too. In other words, if I do for you, you need to do for me. But if you stop doing for me or you don't do for me, and we fall out of like or we fall out of love, whatever the expression is, I will just end up treating you like navel lint. And I'll go and look for like or for love from someone else who will pay me back in kind. And again, I would suggest those are the conventional ways, those are the usual ways that we typically treat people. This passage presents a dramatically, dramatically different way. It presents what I would call, and that's the title of this little talk, a different kind of love. Very different than those three ways that we often deal with people. A different kind of love. Let's read what he says in verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. This is an entirely different kind of love that's being spoken about in verses 11 through 18. The kind of love, frankly, that is only and exclusively really associated with God. The kind of love that only comes when a person is really empowered by the Spirit. A person who is walking with the Spirit the ongoing spirit-filled life. One of my professors in talking about Jesus, probably it wasn't original with him, but he called him the spirit-filled God-man. And you've heard me say this many times. The spirit-filled God-man, Jesus. Let's see what the spirit-filled God-man, Jesus, what kind of love he had for us. It's in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. And so now he's going to give us a definition of the kind of love that's being contextually spoken about in these verses. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is a very different kind of love. So just picking up about what we've already talked about in this passage, what kind of love is he speaking about here? Jesus chose not to hate us, even though we started out hating him. Even though we were in total rebellion against him, he chose not to hate us. Jesus cho- the kind of love Jesus shows is, Jesus chose not to treat us like navel lint, even though that's exactly what we did to him. Jesus chose to love us and to sacrifice absolutely everything that he had for us, whether we ever reciprocated or not. 
That was the deal. That's the kind of love that's being spoken about in this passage. I will love you. I will sacrifice everything for you, whether you ever acknowledge that in any way, shape, or form. That's the kind of love he's talking about in terms of being a spirit-filled follower of the real Jesus. It means, quite frankly, that you're a bit of a weirdo. Let's be thinking about this. You're a bit of a weirdo if you live like that. With Jesus' help. Because it's not really possible. It's not possible apart from that. With Jesus' help in the power of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, where you say, I'm going to love you even if you hate me. I'm going to forgive you even if you don't deserve it. Even if you are not even this much sorry for what you did. I'm going to forgive you with Jesus' help, and I'm going to trust God, the righteous judge, to take care of all that. And then it says really in verse 16, what it's saying is, I will treat you the way God has treated me. Think about that. I will treat you the way God has treated me. And see, that's a little different than the way we typically express it. We usually express it like this. I will treat you the way I would like to be treated. I will treat you the way I would like to be treated. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, I will treat you the way God has treated me. I'll love you even when you hate me. I'll forgive you even when you don't deserve it and you're not sorry. And I'll trust Jesus to deal with that stuff. That's pretty powerful. Now here's our super tough thing. (laughs) Okay, Verse 13 says this. If you do that, now in our world, most everybody is going to assume you're going to be getting huge pats on the back. You're going to be, there's going to be award ceremonies acknowledging the fact that you are loving people and treating people the way God has treated you. Oh, you're going to, you know, your name are going to be up in lights. You're going to be getting awards, the whole shooting match. What it says in verse 13 instead is it says, do not be surprised. if some people hate you because of this. There's a curveball. You mean if I, I love like Jesus loves in his power and his anointing, people are going to hate me for that? See, if you live the way the real Jesus calls us to live... Some people are deeply offended by that. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is probably because it shores up, shows up rather their sort of grand shortcomings. And it points out some things in their life. Even though you say nothing, it just points out some things in their life that they're deeply not proud of. Always remember as well that the gospel of Jesus Christ is deeply offensive to many people. The idea that I'm not God, 
which is the idea most people live with. I'm not God. I'm not in charge. I'm actually in rebellion against holy God. I have done sinful things. I am hopelessly lost apart from the one true God. There's absolutely nothing I can do about that. This runs contrary to everything we've ever been taught in our culture. There's nothing I can do about that. And that Jesus sacrificed his life and everything for me so that I could be forgiven. I have to ask for that forgiveness. I have to humble myself. I have to surrender my life to him and let him be in charge. And he is the only way. That's what scripture says right from the get-go. He's the only way, the only way to have a relationship with God the Father. Ooh, a lot of people don't like to hear that. And so they are very offended by that. And if you treat them the way God has treated you, there will be a lot of people that hate you. And wow, we're seeing that in spades in our world. So you've done nothing personal. I'm not talking about being a jerk here, okay? You've done nothing personally offensive. You're not being a jerk. You're not being impolite. You're not being inappropriately pushy. You're not, you know, saying things at the wrong time. Instead, you're just being a deeply loving person the way Jesus was to us. Don't be surprised. Verse 17, he says, also some outworking of this is that God will lead you to be a very generous person in a growing way. And it's more than just being generous, like writing a check or something like that. It, it's, it's connected with a heart full of compassion. Now, some people just write a check because they can't be bothered with that person. Let's get rid of them. Write some money. No, it's, it's linked to compassion. That my heart is broken for the things that breaks the heart of God. When you live like that, very offensive to some people. Now, let me just give you a couple of sidebar comments that are important to keep in mind. When we love our enemies like this, that doesn't mean you have to trust them. Sometimes people will say that to me. Are you telling me I have to trust them? No, I'm not telling you that. Certainly the Bible is not telling you that. That doesn't mean you take out your key ring and give them the keys to your car and your house and your business and say, have at her. It's not saying that at all. Because as you've often heard me say, trust is earned. Trust is telling and living the truth over a long period of time during which trust begins to be earned. So loving them like this, like the Jesus way, doesn't mean you have to trust them. Also, it does not mean you have to be their best friend. Some people get confused about that. Are you telling me I have to be their best? It, does, it doesn't say that here. Think about how Jesus loved. Verse 16 says we should do it the same way. Jesus wasn't, you know, Jesus was, just look at his life. Read the four Gospels. Jesus was loving. Jesus was friendly towards people. But he only, he was only friends 
and close friends with a very few people. People that he prayerfully chose and spent a lot of time with were his close friends. So there's no limit on the numbers there, but just because you love your enemies, you don't have to be best friends with them, okay? And so once we meet Jesus and have been changed by him, these things begin to grow in us. And then it says in verse 18, Dear children, do not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, and we have, a, you know, we have expressions that we use relative to that. Basically, we need to not just talk the talk, we need to walk the walk, right? And he says, we do and we do in truth. Verse 18. Francis Schaeffer wrote in the book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, wrote this, through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have marks on the lapels of their coat. They've hung chains around their neck, like crosses and stuff, chains around their neck, held up signs at sporting events. And of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but there's a much better sign of what it means to be a Christian. And then Francis referenced, and let me just explain before I read it. Jesus is going to say the words I'm about, said the words that I'm about to read. And it's important to understand when he said it, okay? Because he said these words prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection. That's important. Because he's speaking, if you think about it, he's speaking within the context of the way he lived everyday life, okay? Before the cross, before the resurrection, he's making the comment he's about to make in the context of everyday life. And so Francis says, but there's a much better sign of what it means to be a Christian. And then Jesus said this, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a world full of those kind of weirdos? Let's pray. So Father, as we bow now and conclude our service, we're grateful for the time we've had together with you and together with each other. And we're thinking about our life and, and we're looking at it in light of this passage we just went through. And we understand, we cannot do, I sure understand, can't do this on our own. And uh, there's a message in that for us. So again, if I may, Lord, beginning with me, but each one of us, we just say, here's my life. Here's my life today. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us opportunities to live this stuff out in real time and in real life? Forgive me if I've defaulted to one of those first three things that we usually do with people. 
to one degree or another. And instead, may the example of loving them the way Jesus did for me, may that be the pattern of my life. So I need your help. We need your help. Would you fill us and use us to this end? And we pray these things now as we go. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As we go, I remind you that one of our leaders, Dennis Barber, is up here at the front. He'd be honored to pray with you. Right here, my right, your left, about anything. Just come on up and he'll do that. God bless.